Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We represent various groups working on literacy in the state. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Shelley Vale Smith. Today, we will be talking to Mr. Hildebrand Pelzer III, who has served in wide-ranging capacities as an assistant regional superintendent, principal, assistant principal, and teacher. He received his Bachelor of Science degree in physical education from Hampton University, a Master's of Education in Educational Administration from Cheney University, the author of Unlocking Potential, Organizing a School Inside a Prison, Mr. Pelzer has earned a national reputation for his achievements in expanding opportunities for students in highly challenging schools and educational environments. He has also directed educational programs in Philadelphia's six major correctional facilities, and he has designed two high school models for groups of expelled students. Mr. Pelzer is also an engaging and highly sought after speaker and has used multiple platforms all over the world to spread his message. Welcome, Hildebrand. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Can you start off by telling us about your background as an educator and how you became involved with incarcerated youth? Absolutely. Wow, many years ago, almost 32 years ago, I started out in education. Um, But let me just say, I come from a family of educators. My mom and dad are both retired educators. My mom is a retired high school principal, and my dad is a retired guidance counselor. And so education has always been a part of my life and the expectation that I would attain in education as well. But actually, coming out of college, Hampton University, and through Hampton University, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I thought going into Hampton University, I was going to go into physical therapy. But eventually, I realized once I got on campus that Hampton University at that time didn't have a physical therapy program. So that just says a lot about my college readiness. I fell into and enjoyed physical education, and I got my degree in physical education. And that's the interesting part about my story because I'm not a reading teacher or a reading expert or anything like that. However, In teaching physical education, I got one of my first jobs at a correctional facility in Pennsylvania. And it was a correctional facility for juvenile male boys from all across the Commonwealth. And there I taught physical education and I was part of the athletic program team and I coached basketball and I did all of those things and enjoyed the relationships that I made with the students who were incarcerated juveniles at the age of Some were 18, but many were 17 and younger. An experience, and I always talk about this when I talk to folks, uh, I saw those same kids in the classroom. And in the classroom, they were the total opposite. Athletic, they were strong and they could play sports and they could talk that talk and they had confidence and they did all of those things. But in the classroom, I realized soon that they couldn't read. And that is what 
shocked me because as I said on the outset, I came from a family of educators. Not only just my family, but my aunts and uncles and my cousins and so forth. And so I was surrounded by that. And, and here I was seeing students who were not that much younger than me. So coming out of college, you're like 22, 21, 22, 23, maybe I was. And they were 16, 17, and they couldn't read or write. And so me not knowing what I wanted to do, I figured I would use teaching to go to pay for my graduate work. And I would go back to school to Temple University. And then I started thinking about sports management. But once I saw the students and it intrigued me, it disappointed me. It inspired me. I decided to go back to school for education because I wanted to know why so many children were struggling to read. And they were mostly black boys. That is how I got on this track of being in education and pursuing a career as a school leader. Wow. That is a story that you could have never predicted when you started down that path. Right. Never. Absolutely. So you left this environment and you worked in regular schools for a while. What, what kept drawing you back into this work with incarcerated youth? After maybe this is the late 80s going into the mid 90s, maybe about five years after working in that setting. And I probably will continue to work in that setting. However, at the, that school setting was a private education company and they were leaving that setting. And so it was either work for the new company coming in or pursue other opportunities. And I started applying to school districts. And then I went to a school district right outside of Philadelphia uh, near Delaware and worked as a physical education teacher at a high school. And then I moved on to another school district where I worked as a physical education teacher, health and physical education at the middle school. And at the same time, starting at the correctional facility, I went back to school for my master's in education and principal certification. And so eventually I became an assistant principal and then a principal. But years, maybe 10 year difference from the time I left the correctional setting juvenile to this period in time, I became the principal of the school and it was a school district school. So it was inside of the Philadelphia prison system. And so that's how I got back into corrections. I was comfortable with it because I knew that environment. But the thing was, this was an adult environment. And so that is what caused me to pause a little bit. But the challenge there was one that I wanted to pursue. And there were juveniles there who were being tried as adults. And so my career kind of went from correctional facilities into the district, back into corrections, and then out. After that, I started working with, at the district level, in alternative education. It was students who were expelled and also overseeing some of these facilities where students were incarcerated. Because not everyone has that skill set or yeah. the background, or even the desire to do that. No one, no one has that desire. No one even thinks about, here's the funny thing, working in that setting, even the school district, although they knew they had a school there, superintendents, academic officers, folks who were high level officials had never visited the school. You know, it was just a school, give them a budget, do what they're going to do. And that's how it was when I got there. But the vision that I had from years ago, I was seeing there where students couldn't read and adults couldn't read. And so, as I said, I'm not a reading teacher or reading expert or anything like that. I just feel like reading is a big deal. And along my career, I still struggled with how to lead 
teachers in terms of reading because I wasn't really scaled up. But over time, I started learning about what I should do. So clearly, there are students who were under my leadership who, I'll use the word, failed, weren't successful because I didn't have the knowledge and understanding of the science of reading or what teachers should be doing and those type of things like that. And I still struggle with that even today because there's always new teachers. There are always new students. There are always these opportunities to help people, but you, you find yourself in the midst of being successful at it and sometimes not successful at it. Well, it's just a constant process of learning more. And That's so it. even when you think that you know something, then you think, all right, I've got to go a little deeper because there's always more, at least there okay. is in my world. Yeah. I keep finding new things that I don't know anything about or nearly enough about. Absolutely. So, You've talked a little bit about in these settings, both youth and adults not being able to read. And so could you tell us a little bit about these experiences, how you discovered that Mm -hmm. and also how that played out with what you were doing? So the Philadelphia prison system, well, going back even to the juvenile correction facility when I first started out, I had the opportunity to assist the assistant principal on days that the principal was not in the building. So the assistant principal would take over and he would just say, you know, Hildebrand or Pels or Coach, I need you up here with me today. It was a school building. I was like in the physical education area. And I would basically walk around the building because it was a secure facility and just make certain nothing bad would happen. And if something happened, try to troubleshoot and problem solve. I would walk in and out of classrooms, making certain the teachers had what they needed. Nothing major. I wasn't an administrator or anything like that, but just assisting on those days, being a different set of eyes and ears in the secure facility and just seeing the students struggle, not being able to write, not being able to spell their names, not being able to count past 20. You know, again, these were teenagers and many of them had been incarcerated two and three times. So that is first gave me some insight. but. In the Philadelphia prison system, having this knowledge that this is probably what I'm going to confront, I saw students, juveniles, so I was there for the juveniles, but we also supported the adults in an adult basic education and GED program. It's the student work and the conversations with students that told you that they couldn't read. Some of them flat out told you they couldn't read. The assessments we gave them told us that they couldn't read. The apathy that they had told us that they couldn't read and all those kind of things. But several experiences that I had was one, was one student who flat out came out to me and said, I'm gonna quit school because he was facing decades in prison. He was only 16 years old. And he said he wanted to quit school. And I said, well, why do you wanna quit school? Because a lot of boys would say that to me. I wanna quit school, it's a sign of frustration. But his was something about his tone that day. And it was that he was carrying around the fact that he was getting ready to spend 20 or 30 years in prison. And he said, well, I want to quit school because I'm 16 years old and I'm still on a first grade level. And so here was a young man who knew his level. Because again, we assessed the folks, the students. He knew that was a, a steep hill to climb. He didn't see any more value in learning because he was going to prison. And so that 
is just one example of many interactions I had with some of those young men. And then another time it was an adult. We offered adult basic education. So folks wanted to get their GEDs. We would enroll them in the adult basic education program and find out they couldn't read. So we would have to link up. The the prison had, the prison system had a a hooked on phonics program. And so we would link like, hey, you got to start there. That's another way. Here are grown men and grown women. You say, hey, you got to start there. But one time in one of the correctional facilities, one of the adult male incarcerated individual, he confronted me out of nowhere. He confronted me asking me to help him get into the GED program. He was frustrated with being over 50 years old, still in the hooked on phonics class. And he didn't see any way out of it. And so those are some of the examples of stories and real life situations that just told me that the through line from my early career to that point in my career was reading and literacy. As a school leader, you see this is going to have to be part of your work. And even as an elementary school principal, I see it and saw it. And I see teachers who struggled and teachers who did well. I saw students who struggled and students who didn't well. The effort to go about training teachers or getting teachers even to commit to that kind of work and realizing that they weren't trained in that work. So here I am not trained in that work. I went for physical education and made my way around to education administration. They went into education to be teachers and they didn't have the experience of teaching reading. And so that's the real life of an elementary school in many urban, underperforming, impoverished settings. And so that's why I say I still see it today. So I always kind of caution folks that seeing it at the ground level is what gives me my experience. And I failed and I've been successful in trying to navigate that. Well, as a former elementary principal, I think being on the ground and I know that you are really an advocate for the very early grades and the reading strategies through the science of reading. And so I think that that on the ground experience is Mm -hmm. what allows us to see. Even I was a high school English teacher that went to the elementary level. And so even though that wasn't my background and training, you learn it because you're having to figure it out for a school full of kids. A school full of kids a lot of activity going on, a lot of energy. You can appreciate it's a lot going on in the school. And sometimes I don't want to get caught in like this echo chamber because what I've realized is we have to support teachers and we have to build capacity in them. And being on the ground level, you can see their vulnerabilities. And and they'll tell you you if you coach them and give them feedback and develop relationships with teachers, They'll say, I need help with teaching reading. We're in the echo chamber. You know, people just saying, talk about the data, the data. Kids can't read. What's going on with those schools or what's going on with those teachers? But when you're in the trenches, it's like you are doing this work. It's just very slow work sometimes. You're repeating yourself sometimes when you get new teachers coming in. So you find yourself starting over again. It's tough work, but it's rewarding work. It is. And there's just so much to it. And so what we've learned over the last you know, 20, 30 years is vastly different than how most people were trained. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just think about that. You have teachers 
and school leaders, as you just said, train this way, are entrenched in that training and probably that time got some very good training. And then there's this new way. And then you like trying to change the mindsets. In that's the midst the of chaos. Yeah, that's the in the midst of the chaos because there's a lot of energy going on in the schools. <laughs> that's right. And so people who have not experienced that really have no idea what that is truly that's like. Right. So. That's right. That, there you go. There's been a lot of talk about the school to prison pipeline, but there's some people who still don't believe this exists. What would you say to those individuals? Oh, it exists. It exists because I've seen it. Someone was telling me the other day who knew me years ago or worked with me and said, Hildebrand, you've seen both sides of the school to prison pipeline. And I said, yeah. And that's why some folks don't think it exists. They haven't worked inside of correctional settings. And I'm talking about not visiting. I'm talking about you're moving around in that correctional community. And so you see individuals, young individuals, older individuals coming to jail, going to prison. As the young man, I said, spending 20 and 30 years in prison at the age of 16. It is real. What challenges me sometimes is there are different opinions about the school to prison pipeline. And so many people look at the school to prison pipeline from a behavior standpoint. Children get suspended. Children get expelled. Behavior problems too many police in schools and all of those kind of things. And they have some contribution to this issue. But my experience, again, being in the trenches, the trenches, including me working in that setting, I see it's reading. And so when children struggle with reading, begin to act out, we look at the behaviors that they demonstrate. We might even say, hey, you, you're not responding to my instructions, so you need special education and emotional support. But we focus on that and we don't get back to the effectiveness of the reading instruction and helping teachers understand those warning signs that might look like behaviors so that they can correct and really engage that child. And we look at the behavior and we deal with it that way. I'm one that wants to say and continues to say that it's about early literacy and it's about reading and it's about helping teachers get confident and stronger in how to teach reading. So it's real. It is real. And if anyone doesn't believe it, visit your local county jail, visit your local county juvenile detention center, or if you have the courage, visit your local state correctional institution. It's real. It's a lot to take in. Yeah. You know, in my book, I have this chapter called The White School Bus. The chapter is really about the white school buses. I kind of compare it to what we think about school. We think about the yellow school bus. But on the white school bus, in many counties and cities, the sheriff van and buses that transport prisoners to court and to correctional facilities is white. And in that chapter, I talk about what if the individuals on those buses were being transported to schools and universities instead of jails and prisons. And every day that I go to work, it's a route that I take to get to work. I see the white school buses travel that route. Now, most cars will probably just keep on driving, but I'm like traumatized. So every time I see it, I see them going up to the 
state correctional institution. And so the school to prison pipeline is, is right there. It's, it's in front of us. But if you don't have that experience, you don't believe it's there. And I've seen those white buses and never thought about those being juveniles. Yeah. And yeah. certainly have not thought about what the original intent for those buses were. Right. Yep. White wow. Buses, white school buses. I used to park my car at the Philadelphia prison system and, and I went in all the correctional facilities. There was six of them. That's how large this place was. It was six major correctional facilities on one piece of property. The one where my school office was located, I had a parking spot outside. And every day I would pull up around the same time every day. My ritual was to watch the white school buses come from behind the, the gates. The gates open up and these buses like four and five buses would just pass and they were either going to court or taking folks from county jail to state prison. It was amazing. And so once they fall out of love with school and not having good relationships with their school or with their teachers or with an adult in the school, or maybe not even have, like I said, again, and I always mention, I come from a family of educators. So it was like an expectation. So if you don't have that kind of strength and expectation and structure in your home is easy to fall out of love. And then you find other things that you love. And sometimes those other things may be criminal activity, maybe health damaging activity, and it may be activity that's just not good for anyone. So true. You've designed specialized schools for these students. What's different about what you designed? So my greatest joy is inside the Philadelphia prison system, we created a model where we called it a cohort teaching model. And what it really entailed was reducing the number of students into small groups and only giving them throughout the day two teachers that they would interface with. The point was to build relationships with teachers we wanted those teachers to have both content and special education background so they understood individualized instruction as well as their content. And we could then have those teachers work in a smaller adult-student ratio. And so the model really was about relationships and making certain that content was driven. All the other things about the operation of the school, the hours, making certain they were earning credits, trying to balance security with education, all of those things were still important. But what was most important about this particular model was smaller group instruction and only having two, no more than three, depending on the cohort teachers that you interface with. We found that to be successful. That model I also used when I had the opportunity working at a district level to develop schools for students who were permanently expelled from the local school district. And so when students are expelled by the school board at this time anyway, the parents had to find another school for them. If the parents couldn't find another school for them because it would be hard to go to another school and say, why did you leave that school? I was expelled. You know what? I don't want you here. Then after 30 days or so, the school district had to have a program for them. And the superintendent asked me and, and our team to develop schools for students who the school board had expelled. 
And that's how I got to the opportunity to develop high schools for expelled students. But the key was I used the same concept of cohort teaching models where it was small group of students and a small, at this time, it was four teachers and a cohort of kids. And it's almost like thinking about the one room schoolhouse where you have students, because here's the other thing, and I should have mentioned this, they were all at different levels. So it wasn't really about I'm 18 or 17 and I'm supposed to be in the 12th grade. It was really about you can't read, you can't do this, and we're going to, the, the program is going to be wrapped around that. So you might be 14 and he's 17 type of thing. And we use that same model for our expel students. And again, it was about building relationships with teachers because these are students that don't have relationships with their teachers or school. So that was important. And then it was about small groups so that the two or three teachers in the expel setting was four in the incarcerated setting was two, no more than three, could get to each student and match their needs. And so when I first got to the Philadelphia prison system, there was no coherent model. There were some students who were able to come to the school area because of good behavior. And there were hundreds of students who were left on the cell blocks because of poor behavior. And my philosophy was education is a must and it will help rehabilitate them. And so I had to figure out a way to educate more than a few students and also educate all of them. Now, in my book, I talk about what really pushed that was that there were lawsuits coming down that students who were incarcerated weren't getting education. And so it urged and pushed me to come up with a model. So what's your call to action for people? How do we change this dynamic that's in existence now? Don't quit. As a school leader, I've seen teachers and people who want to pursue leadership actually get so frustrated that they quit the profession because of the challenges that they get confronted with or face. And so I always try to help people see the difference that they're making in not only education, but in people and families, their lives. And so, as I said to you earlier, I still struggle with this. I have uh, uh, kids who read on target, kids who don't read on target, teachers who, who push back on setting goals and all that. You got, you know, the union and you got all kinds of stuff happening in the trenches, but you have to help people see the difference that they're making. And so while you might not be reaching achievement goals, you're reaching growth goals. You, you're taking kids and you're developing teachers from here and you're moving them and they're getting better. And as a result, they're making a difference in lives. And so, you know, I would say have some grit, don't quit and understand what you're getting in, into when you go into education. You know, I remember when I first went to the second school district that I, I worked at, you had to take an, a, an exam basically uh, based on the score of your exam that's where you were, they gave you a number so you can come and pick your school. 
And that's what started with what we all know about that seniority. And I remember a guy who was right behind me and I went and he was telling me about another school that I should pick. He said, you should pick that school over there because that school is a good school and it doesn't have this and it doesn't have that. And I listened to him and I knew a little bit about the school, but I said, no, I want this school because I grew up in that community. I know about that community and I know the needs of that community. So I always tell teachers, when you are going to a school, it's so important that you understand the community, you understand the needs, you understand the demographics so that you can appreciate the challenges that you are going to be faced with. And so sometimes that message resonates with folks and sometimes it doesn't. But I found those that are committed to a school community, its challenges and its successes, and they're in it for the long haul, that school will ultimately grow and they'll make a difference. I know that you and I have spoken about if we can do a better job in those early grades, then perhaps we end up with less people in those incarcerated settings. Ultimately, ultimately, just imagine. So what do we do? We have to train a teacher. We have to do professional development, which are all good things. But you find yourself in the upper grades, third, fourth, fifth, even in middle school, teaching them how to read versus them reading to learn. So you, you things that you should be doing in the early grades, you find yourself doing it. Even some high schools are finding themselves doing small group reading, right? Because even going to colleges, pretty the community colleges, they make you take remedial courses before you can take credited courses. All of those are examples of we got to do a better job at the early grades. Absolutely. Yeah. I say preach it, brother. Yeah. <laughs> you speak to people and groups around the world. How likely do you think change is on all these different fronts? I think change and innovation is out there. I am confident. Not, not only just out there, but even in schools. I see young school leaders, young teachers, and I'm talking about the trenches, but also in the trenches are some very, very bright minds that are doing some phenomenal uh, school leadership work. But having the opportunity to speak, and I've, I've virtually, you can speak just about anywhere, but before uh, the pandemic and things, I've had the opportunity to speak and even go as far as London to speak. After speaking, I find people who are innovators, people who believe in change, people who are willing to do something about it, that type of thing. And so I think things will get better. I believe it. I want to believe it. I think we have to get out of the, 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 the echo chamber and not just talk about the problem. Right? People love to talk about the problem, but what are you going to do about the problem? That's why I talk about reimagining teacher preparation, because for me, I think that's something I could help with versus just talking about, hey, the guy's in jail, they can't read. The achievement data says this and that. And 70% of the kids, well, I already, well, I already know that. There are books. I have books here in my house. Uh, Jean Shaw, she's an author, wrote a book in 1967. You know, she was a Harvard researcher, Jean Shaw. Her book is from 1967. In her book, she talks about beginning teachers talking about they couldn't teach reading. And so if that was 1967, she was using data and research prior to that. So it becomes either we're just going to be talking about this stuff, talking about the school to prison pipeline, talk. Listen, if you're in the trenches, 
you can do something because you kind of have a better sense of what could be done. And for me, I think it's time for teachers to come into schools ready to go on, on day one. And so that means universities have to do better. And so, but there are a lot of bright minds out there and I think it's going to be a new day. Well, I just love the collaboration that the community educators across this country and even the world are are coming together, hopefully, to help solve some of those problems. So thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate what you are doing for families and especially children. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate this opportunity. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network podcast.